We are straight-talking Southern girls in our 50s, and that's what you're going to get. Welcome to Ladies Roadmap. We're your hosts, Joe Jamie Tyler and Lana Helda. Come along for the ride and join us as we travel to bring you thought-provoking subjects and women who inspire and strive to make a difference in the world. Hello, and welcome to Ladies Roadmap. Today is Brain and Mental Health Awareness Month, and Jamie and I have decided to shine the light on Alzheimer's and the prevention of it. You know, when, if a family member is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it really changes the entire dynamic in the family life. And it is not only such a heartbreaking disease, but it really becomes extremely stressful and costly for the caregivers. I'm sure we all have a friend or know someone that is caring for a loved one with dementia. It's so prevalent these days. So today we feel extremely fortunate because we have the opportunity to speak with Jim McAleer, who is the CEO of Alzheimer's Orange County. And we are here at their beautiful facility today. And you all have an incredible organization, Jim, with its ever-reaching arms of service and support of families and patients of Alzheimer's. We are also, after Jim, going to hear the stories of two caregivers who have gone through this difficult time with their loved ones. Welcome, Jim. Hi. Thanks for having me. (laughs) That was a long introduction, but we wanted to talk a little bit about the whole month of brain health. And we just want to thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. That's a pleasure. Jim, when I was researching you, I noticed that your history, your career history, is very focused around the disabled. Was that planned or did that happen organically? Well, I've I've been in nonprofits for over 30 years, and it's always been focused on people who are at significant risk. I was in college actually on a vocal scholarship. They asked me to teach a choir for adults with mental retardation, and I was hooked. Within six months, I was getting my undergraduate degree at night, working full-time during the day, and I haven't stopped since. I've worked with people with labels of mental retardation, certainly 14 years with people with dementia, and an awful lot of very hungry orphans. Wow, so it was by design. Mm-hmm. That's, well, ama- that's amazing. By design, I think I was in the right place at the right time. I'm one of those lucky few who actually gets to love what he does. Yeah, you had a, you had a calling. Well, we really do. Lana and I really feel that this is such an important topic to be discussing for women over 40. Um, I have to say, I've been familiar with your... Um, Alzheimer's Orange County's organization, but until we started doing the research, we just didn't have any idea how far-reaching all your services are that you provide. Well, I, I do think the services are fantastic. If, if I say so myself, I think our organization does some amazing work, but it also speaks to the, the depth of the need. There are 84,000 people just in Orange County. It's going to double by 2030, triple by 2050, over 5 million in the country. It's a huge, huge depth of need. Well, and then in your reading your website, we saw that the caregivers, it's like double what the caregivers are. So what are all these people doing with their loved ones if they have to go to work during the day? Well, let's talk about who that caregiver likely is likely to be. Um, I'm sorry, ladies, it's far more likely to be a woman. Um, it's much more likely to the tune of 66% of caregivers are women. People with this disease are almost twice as likely to be a female. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is part of that is because you're going to live longer than, than we men are. But at the end of the day, it's very much a, a disease that focuses its impact on women. 
So for the caregiver, what do they do uh, when they have to go to work? Some can't. Some compromise their family's finances. Um, a lot of folks will use an adult daycare. So I'm not a huge fan of the word daycare because it sounds like you're talking about a child, but um, it's a place where a person with Alzheimer's or other dementia can go. Nutritionist provides the meals. You have an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, recreation folks. So there's a lot of activity, but also a lot of safety. Um, we know how to protect against wandering and those sorts of right. things. Right. That's a big issue that people talk about is all of a sudden their loved one is gone outdoors and they don't they can't get home, mm-hmm. they don't know where they are and it's a basically isn't that called the crisis mode when they get to the point where they cannot be alone anymore? You know, I, I wish it was always that distinct of a moment mm-hmm. where you say, oh, my loved one can't be left alone in, uh, any longer. Oftentimes someone who is still driving, carrying on a reasonable conversation, but has an aphasic moment, just a moment where they think that their home is the home from 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So it's difficult to decide what is that point where a person, frankly, loses some independence in deference to their safety. But 70% of people with Alzheimer's disease are going to wander at some point, 70%. So it's important for caregivers, loved ones, and family to be vigilant even in the earlier days. Well, tell us a little bit about the Alzheimer's OCs kind of mission and philosophy, if, it, if you can, in a nutshell. Sure. So we're a community-based organization, so we're a regular nonprofit, a 501c3. So our mission is primarily to serve those with some type of memory impairment and those who care for them. I, I learned a long time ago, I've been here 14 years, that it's really the caregiver where we have the most impact except in the early stages of the disease. So so someone with a recent diagnosis or um, the first stages of the disease can absolutely benefit from our programs. Over time, it's the caregiver where we can have the greatest impact even on that person by giving them the skills, the tools that they need to do their work. So we have 45 support groups. Last year, we trained 27,000 caregivers. 27,000. Wow. Not bad. Not bad. Now, are these... How do you fund fund all this? Is it insurance? Is it... Uh, donations? Well, the daycares are par- largely funded by different types of insurance. So the, for the full bore, all-day program, yes, there's uh, some insurance income for us. The rest of our programs, our support groups, our caregiver education, our Memories of the Making programs, all of them are funded by donations. Grants, individual contributors. We have a large walk that we do in the fall, the Walk for Alls at Anaheim Stadium. Uh, that helps quite a bit. And of course, we do the standard uh, galas that are so popular here in Orange County. Yeah. Now, Jim, when I was also reading up on on Alzheimer's, I found it interesting, and I, probably a lot of people don't know this, that the word dementia is sort of the umbrella, right? And right. then there's a lot of different kinds of Alzheimer's. Um, would you maybe just go into a little bit about what some of the differences are? Sure. So I think you say it well when you say it's an umbrella term. When you think of cancer as the overarching term, but there's prostate cancer, there's breast cancer, there's uh, colon cancer. So dementia is any condition that impacts your ability to function and think, right? So it impacts your daily living skills. Underneath that, Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, but there's vascular dementia, where your circulatory system is compromised, causing some problems with your memory and your function. There's AIDS-related dementia, There's pugilistic dementia. So you're hearing a lot more about NFL players or boxers recently, right? You've seen that in the news. That's pugilistic dementia where um, you're you're shaken about so much in the brain that over time it causes impairment. There's Lewy body, 
uh, Robin Williams, for example, that often comes with behaviors not necessarily associated with Alzheimer's. There's frontal temporal, same story. Often there are behaviors that uh, we don't see with traditional Alzheimer's. Lots of different forms of dementia. So what, how do we get tested for that? And how does that, you know, do you, do you all help encourage people to do it early or how does that work? So I think the first thing that we look for is, one, are you worried about your memory? And the, the key thing there is, has it changed over time? I mean, I forgot my keys every day at 20. Well, I'm, the fact that I'm still forgetting them at 52 is probably not memory loss or dementia. If you've noticed a change in your memory or your mood, uh, it's reasonable to ask your physician for a memory screen. A memory screen's not a diagnosis. We can do them here, actually. But it will tell you how you compare to people your age, your education, those sorts of things. So if that memory screen comes back that indicates there might be something to look at, then you go to a competent clinician. You, you wouldn't go to your... Uh, generally practicing physician if you're worried about cancer. You wouldn't go there if you're worried about your heart. you go to a cardiologist. So we want to get you to a specialist. What's, what do you call that specialist? Lots of different folks do diagnoses. There are clinical psychologists who can. Um, there are some wonderful diagnostic centers here that are incredibly comprehensive. The UCI Mind Institute, the HAPS Clinic are both amazing. So we, we refer people all the time to neurologists and other different specialists who have the capability of doing a diagnosis. The important thing one, as soon as you're worried, go get it checked out. Part of that, 15% of dementias are treatable. They can be caused by medication interactions. You know, as we get older, they get a new pill a year, right? Right? So it, again, at 52, I'm, I'm looking at the box in the morning. Sometimes those drugs can interact and mirror the symptoms of memory loss. There are other things that you need to get checked out, hormone imbalances, vitamin deficiencies. You want to be sure that if you've got one of those 15%, you get that puppy treated. Yeah. Definitely. We, we actually uh, did a show yesterday, which you would really enjoy hearing, um, with a genome nutrition expert who, who is really well-versed in Alzheimer's. And, he, and so we're going, to, we're going to air that show as well on how to prevent, how you can help prevent it. Excellent. The research is, is so clear on what we don't know. Yes. But not particularly clear on what we do. We do know that exercise is probably one of the most important things you can keep doing at least 20 minutes, three times a week. But by the way, that doesn't start when you're on your couch. That right. starts when your heart rate is <laughs> elevated. Right. The other is diet. It's, we hear a lot these days about the DASH diet and the MIND diet. The bottom line is brain health is heart health. The things that tend to be healthy for your heart appear to be healthy for your brain. Exactly. And they're certainly not going to hurt you. No. Well, what is your primary goal as the CEO for Alzheimer's OC for the organization this year? To put resources and information in the hands of people who need them. You know, I mentioned there are 84,000 people in Orange County who are impacted by this disease. We think we serve roughly a third of that. That's not acceptable. It's a high penetration for most businesses, but that means we're leaving a lot of people on the side of the road without help. Mm -hmm. I want everybody who wants a support group to have one, who wants to participate in a clinical trial to know what questions to ask, who is burned out as a caregiver to understand that there are tools to help them. Right. right. And is it just because they don't know that you're here as a resource? Or are you trying to get the word out? I, I think that's a big part of it. I think there's some denial for many people. Mm. You know, nobody wants to put a sticker on their chest that says, hi, I'm Jim and I have Alzheimer's disease. It's scary for people to combat it, even when they accept that they may be impacted by the disease. To reach out for help is a whole different step. Mm. So there's the denial factor. And I do think there's an awareness factor that folks simply, they either don't know that we're here or they don't know that we offer free 
really um, useful services. You know, they're not sure what we do, so until they plug in, they don't know that, yes, we could probably help. Yes, I mean, you have to go on and check out their website, Alzheimer's OC. They offer a multitude of health, of, of different services. Maybe just run down real quick a list of a few. I mean, you said about the adult daycare, but there's... There, oh, I know what I was actually very curious about, was I saw that you also offer uh, networking and classes for professionals in the industry. And I was curious if you could expand on the need for that, what what that is. Sure. So first of all, the website is alzoc.org. Thank you. And you will find a lot of resources there and descriptions of our services. Before I go to the services, let's talk specifically about professional caregivers. We oftentimes will refer to paid and unpaid caregivers because I got to tell you that eighty-two-year-old spouse who's been caring for her husband for ten years is pretty darn professional. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I would agree with that. God bless her, right? Yes. So when we talk about paid professionals, just because you go to work in the field of memory care doesn't mean that you come with credentials, education, background, or experience. So we want to make sure that those folks know how to look for dehydration, for example because our family members may not be able to communicate any longer um, that they are thirsty or that they have a pin picking at them from underneath their clothing. There are ways to communicate with those folks, but they're different. So we try and make sure people have those skills. We also want to make sure that people understand symptoms of elder abuse, the things to look for, the things that are not okay to do. Um, In certain cultures in our community, uh, spanking children is acceptable. It is never acceptable in a clinical setting. So those are things that we can help make sure people understand. For the unpaid caregiver, I think the most important thing we teach them is to take care of themselves first. Yes, I saw that you have a lot of different outreach kind of programs for that. And it's going to be interesting because we're going to talk to a couple of caregivers later about how they did just that. So that will be interesting. The firsthand experiences are so powerful. I think you said earlier that we all know somebody. If not in our immediate family, it's a friend of a friend, but within a very short period of time, we're all going to know somebody first person. Everyone in this country is either going to be a person being cared for or a caregiver um, within the next 25 years. Part of that's just the aging of the population, but we're going there. Yeah. Well, I'm curious when you have the, the vol- a lot of the volunteers here, do you find that some of your best volunteers are people who have been caregivers or have family members and so they want to give back? Is that the majority of people you see or do you just get a random? We get a pretty wide cross section. Um, we try to be as highly visible as possible and we try to make the volunteer experience as rewarding as possible. Certainly caregivers have an immediate empathy. They've been through this. They understand what your experience is. So one, they're committed to the task that they're doing because it was helpful for them or they wish they had had it. We get a lot of those folks. Their person has passed. We weren't a part of their their path during that period of time. So they want to make sure other people connect to services like ours. Yeah. Yes, caregivers are magnificent volunteers, but frankly, we'll take anybody with a heart and, (laughs) and some time. Jim, since you're talking about the caregivers, that takes me to what do you think is the most important thing a caregiver can do to take care of themselves? Oh, that's an easy answer. Ask for help. Help for me might be different than help for you. I may need a chance to go and get my hair done or my nails done, so I need somebody to sit with my loved one. You may need someone to go buy groceries for you or to come help them bathe because they're too heavy to get in and out of the bathtub. So ask for help and be willing to accept it. The second most important thing is creating time for yourself. Caring for someone 24-7 is an impossible task long-term. 
finding ways to get some respite and to find a little bit of time for your favorite preferred activity is absolutely vital to both your mental and physical health. Yes, we teach our ladies at Red Ladies Roadmap that in really all areas of their life, but this is like times a thousand. So I can, we can see where that would be so important. Well, thanks again for sharing that. You know, um, you're so, we're so lucky here in Orange County to have you. What, what would you say for those that are, you know, we have listeners all over the country, all over the world. What would you say for someone, where would they reach out for help in maybe a, a different type of city? Or they live in a rural area It's or tougher in rural areas. Um, a lot of your resources are going to be online. I think that uh, NIH, the National Institute of Health, if you Google NIH and Alzheimer's, you'll find a host of, of written resources on their site. Most areas have a local Alzheimer's association um, throughout the country. So I would go to their website, alz.org, and see if there's a chapter near you. Um, there's a chapter of them in Orange County, by the way. Um, where our work is different, but they can connect you to resources. So wherever you're at, Google Alzheimer's, the location you're at, like Alzheimer's, New Jersey, and just see what comes up. There's offices on aging throughout the country. There are councils on aging who often will have something to help you. That's great. That's great information. Well, is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with? Maybe one bit of advice other than looking up, Googling it. Is there anything else you would want to want to leave them with well i'm afraid i'm gonna i'm gonna stick you with two final thoughts okay we like it (laughs) one is if you've ever been on a plane you know that the captain tells you to put the air mask on you first and your loved one second that analogy holds true so well with caregiving if you're not taking care of yourself with time attention stress relieving activities of some kind you can't effectively take care of someone else long term it's just too hard the other piece is If you're worried about your memory or someone else's, plug in. Even though there's not a drug right now that's going to stop it or change its trajectory, there are a million other things that you can do that will make life more positive and that path easier for you. So those were, sorry, you got two. We love it. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much. Uh, You know what? Before we even, we're going to keep you one more question here. Um, Is there a book or something you would recommend to a person who's just discovered that a family member or a loved one has dementia? First and foremost, be very careful of what you read in those early stages. You may not be ready for what some of that information is. And by the way, everyone's path with this disease is different. So if you're reading a book, for example, like Still Alice, a magnificent work, that may not be what your path looks like. I suggest to folks the first thing they should do is connect with an organization like ours and ask for basic information, a description of the disease, some of the steps and stages that you'll be experiencing. And then over time, you'll be ready for things like Coach Broyles' playbook, um, which actually is a a calendar you can fill in that will help you plan your days uh, as you get later into the disease process. And there are a host of others. Some of our caregivers locally have actually written several um, amazing, amazing works. Interesting. Yeah, when you said that, it even makes me think about sometimes when we Google even a small issue, you Google it, and then you're so overwhelmed. You think you're going to die tomorrow by what they've put in in some of the the articles on the on online. So you do have to be careful. And it's not always accurate. So particularly right. as it relates to research, you'll see nutraceutical companies, vitamin companies, that will make extraordinary claims that are not backed up by clinically review, reviewed research. So you have to be really careful when you read an article. The other thing to look for is if the Today Show blasts this lovely new drug that's going to cure Alzheimer's disease. Look and see if they're testing it in humans, because if it's just in mice, we're 10 years, 20 years out. 
are they testing it in humans more than a couple of hundred? Because at the earliest stages of the disease uh, and, and drugs, we just don't know if they're effective or not. And you know, having now that you've said that, what what is your opinion? And maybe you don't even want to say, but I'm thinking, do you have an opinion of how far we have come in the last five five years? If we've made great strides or not? It's really hard for most folks, I think, to understand that failure in science is valuable. We've learned a lot by what didn't work. We know, for example, that we can clear the beta amyloid in the brain that's one of the hallmarks of this disease, but we won't see any functional recovery if we clear that beta amyloid too late in the process. So that's valuable information. Now we're testing with people who are at risk of getting this disease if we give them those drugs so that beta amyloid never gloms to the outside of the brain. Will it help? We don't know yet, but we're learning. So I think we're leaning more towards prevention of this disease than ongoing treatments. It appears to go that way. And I think we have made some good progress. I don't think we're within a year or two of, of a cure. Yeah. Well, this has been very enlightening, and we really do, again, appreciate your time. And once again, I'm going to let Jim tell you where, if you would like to reach out to Alzheimer's OC, how to contact them. Certainly. You can get us at our website, alzoc.org. And our local phone number is 949-955-9000. Again, alzoc.org or 949-955-9000. And we will have all these listed in our show notes at ladiesroadmap.com. Thank you, Jim, so much. This has been very valuable information that we all needed to hear. Thank you both, ladies. Y'all have a good day. Thank Thank you. Now we are going to have a treat because we have Phyllis Greenberg with us, who was a caregiver for her beloved husband, Morris, for 14 years. Thank you, Phyllis, so much for coming. You're going to share your story with us. Thank you. So you were married to your husband, Morris, for many, many years. Um, What was the first sign that something was wrong? A relative who had come, his brother and his brother's wife came to visit Um, and his brother had been diagnosed with uh, vascular dementia that year. And so my sister-in-law noticed that Morris had kind of removed himself. You know, you don't notice these things because you become so acclimated to... Sure. uh, And she suggested that maybe I should have him um, checked by... A neurologist, because she was seeing some signs that she had seen. That's in, yeah, that's in the interesting. Brother. Someone that came into the house that knew him well right. noticed it because you're just you just get accustomed to it. Um, I brought him to um, a neurologist. He immediately said that Morris had Alzheimer's, and I felt that he was wrong. My mother had Alzheimer's, and Morris was not showing those early signs. Um, I decided to bring him for a second opinion. And um, this particular neurologist treated him as a person um, and engaged with him, talking to him. And um, a little while later, maybe about 10 minutes later, he asked Morris to walk down the hall. And as I was standing there next to Dr. Stark, He leaned over and he said, "Um, watch, he's going to turn like a board. And in fact, he did. So we went into his office, which actually also is unique because 
examining someone with dementia in a, an examining room is really not um, necessary. So we went into his office, and he explained that he thought Morris might have uh, signs of Parkinsonianism, uh, um, and he prescribed some medicine. And that was really the beginning. I went home and Googled. Um, and so the signs were stiffness. When he was walking, he was sort of stooped. Um, he was beginning to shuffle his feet, and his arms didn't swing. And that is a very important thing. Um, we soon realized that there was also a dementia piece, probably um, within, you know, within that year, because he was having, even then, very mild signs, soft signs of uh, spatial, uh, visual spatial orientation, difficulties with that. Dementia comes in many, many forms. And because of that, it's, um, it's not it's a one size. Yeah, it's not a one-size-fits-all, is it? It's not, yes. Um, I think that you need to listen to other people mm -hmm. who are seeing changes. They're objectionable. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're coming from the outside. <clears throat> now, you told me, um, Phyllis, that Morris had Lewis, Louis body, Louis body dementia. Right. And we talked earlier with Jim about that the dementias and there's an umbrella and then there's all these different ones and he mentioned Louis body. Can you tell us just a little bit about Louis body and my, maybe how that's different? Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, I searched and searched for many years actually because Louis body has only recently been more defined. Um, and the cate categories uh, or the description of it is changing. Um, and so even when we began to suspect, suspect it, he didn't have hallucinations. Um, and that was, at that time, a critical piece. But someone who is exhibiting the kind of cognitive problems that Morris had, he had confusion. If we had a discussion, he would become very confused with anything that wasn't just very concrete. Um, and so, that was a significant sign along with the Parkinsonian. He did not show some of the, what they call idiopathic signs, such as the shaking. He didn't have shaking. So it was more the stiffness and then the problems with confusion. Um, it began to affect his ability to understand um, information that was given to him. And those were the signs that eventually led to a diagnosis. What did you do to take care of yourself? Because that's really, we've been hearing that that's one of the most important things to make sure that you are taken care of. We were a member of a, um, a congregation, a Jewish congregation. It was a small group, and we knew all of the members. And so maintaining those friendships with Morris and going to, uh, uh, to uh, family dinners, um, Passover at someone's house and that kind of thing. Um, so that was maintained. Um, doing things with family was maintained. But for me alone, I've been in, now I've been in a book club for 20 years. And that, I continued um, doing that. I found a, fr a very dear friend who was also um, a retired counselor. And this is about the time that I was thinking of retiring. And she, <clears throat> her husband had uh, Parkinson's. And then there was someone, a, a secretary, who came to me and said, there's another 
um, gal, her husband has Parkinson's. And so we started meeting for lunch three, uh, about you know, once a month. And then there were two others, another psychologist whose brother-in-law was living in the back house, and um, another um, counselor who, uh, her husband, had, she was retired and her husband had Parkinson's. And so we started meeting um, first yeah, formed, in the evening. Sounds like you formed your own support we group. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. And the, and the last thing was that uh, the Alzheimer's Association provided the um, support group for Lewy Body that I was able to attend. You heard the same thing. You heard what people were going through. And it confirmed your my conviction that he did have Lewy body because um, there was a commonality between the, um, the physical signs but also the personality signs. Right, and I can imagine having someone to talk to that is going through the identical issues that you are <laughs> would have to be so helpful when sometimes, it, you know, it sounds like, to me when I, when I hear about this, it's like you're a member of a club you never wanted to join, and then there's this sort of invisible curtain that changes your life mm -hmm. and the way you relate to the world. And so I would think you would really need like-minded people that are going through what you're going through to, to just be a sounding board. Of this group, four of the five men have died. And we still meet with each other every month. It's not a crying party. Good. It is one in which we enjoy being together. Basically, it's a friendship group. And we call ourselves fabulous friends. That's awesome. Oh, I love That's that. That's great. Um, I, I wanted to mention one other thing. You were talking about, I, I thought it was very important and, and profound when you said you really can't hide dementia from anyone, so it's really important to speak honestly and open with your love, <clears throat> with your friends and, and your family members, and to try to stay up, be as upbeat as possible when, you, when you're talking about it, but that you have to stay honest. Um, I have a, a very specific um, uh, incident. We were going to Friday night services at our synagogue, and Morris said, do they know? Mm. And I said, yes, Morris, they know. And after that, he was so comfortable in going oh. with them. Um, and um, so, and they were so good to him. And so understanding his, his needs right. helped them to be able to accommodate. For instance, if we would go for a Rosh Hashanah dinner, as we did to some friends, um, they would be able to accommodate and make sure that the chair that he was sitting at was one that he could get to easily, you know, those kinds of things. Well, you also mentioned that you, uh, at, toward the end, you, you went and seeked a palliative doctor. Can you tell us a little bit about how that helped you? Well, in defense of palliative doctors or that whole field, it's very new. So. I was on the freeway listening to the radio, and I heard a feature about palliative care. And I thought, this was really late on. And I'm thinking, I'd never heard of that. So I called Morris's um, insurance, and they go, oh, yes, and immediately connected me wow. with the office. Well, I found out later that Dr. Kimura, is, he's like a pioneer, I think, in the field. So when I met with him, 
for the first time, and Morris was already in memory care at this time. We met, <clears throat> we met in the um, the welcome center, and um, he he told me that he worked first of all with the family. The family was where he was going to spend most of his time talking to me and whoever else I wanted to bring in, and then and and we would and he would also go to see. Morris. Well, what, but like, what did he do? What are some of the th specific things maybe that, that really helped you? Was it just having someone to guide you through that process at the end and let you know what you, what to expect? Or for those of us who just aren't really familiar with, with how it works? I think it, in the end, he had an opportunity to meet with um, um, Morris, my stepson and daughter as well. So there were three of Morris's children, mm -hmm. all Involved with the decision to um, the decision to bring in hospice, okay, um, and that was a very very difficult decision. Morris had been in the hospital for ten days, um, and he wasn't really getting better, and yet there's always that resistance, right? And it wasn't the hospital's recommendations; it was Dr. Kamora's because we met with him the day that Morris went back to his. Um, the memory care, or actually the nursing care at um, this um, um, this facility. So they see the sign. They know what the signs are. They help mm -hmm. you to know what steps you should be taking. Because as you said, it's such a difficult situation. Maybe you you just don't. I can imagine being at a point where you really don't know what and, you should do next. And we had built trust with him. I trusted what he said. He was able to explain some of the things that had happened in the hospital and how that would um, reflect on uh, making a decision for hospice. Um, and so it was both his explanation mm -hmm. and the trust that we had built and that he knew all of us. He knew everyone in the family. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's, it is one that is going to help so many people because it's not something we really talk about much, you know? No, and yet, like we said earlier, there's, you, we all know someone who's either experiencing someone with dementia or taking care of someone mm -hmm. with dementia or a parent. So we really appreciate you sharing your story, and we, we wish you the best. Wish you the very best. Yes. Well, I have one piece of, uh, of advice. Okay. Um, search for uh, for people to help you. You can't do it by yourself. Right. Um, and it, it may be family members. Sometimes some family members may be resistant, but a best friend or people that can help you through the process in any way that they can. They will. It will. It will be determined by their skills and their strengths. So don't try to be a martyr. You can't get through no. this thing by yourself. No, you need you need support. That's that's a common thread we keep we keep hearing. Well, thank you again and we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Now we are going to be speaking with Jan Ebert, who was a caregiver for her beloved mother. Welcome, Jan. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. So tell us about how you and your siblings, how you all realized that your mother was having issues. Well, my mother lived in Washington and I live in California, so she lived a thousand miles away. And the way I heard about it was through neighbors up there giving me a phone call. So I got phone calls that um, uh, 
you know, it looks like the house was going to burn down or she was having problems at home. And they were very frightening being so far away. And of course, I got them while I'm at work. And so uh, I got more and more phone calls. So then I needed to go up there and find out what was going on. And when you got up there, had she been to any doctors yet or been diagnosed no, with No, she hadn't. And she took a long time. It was a real struggle trying to get her to realize that she actually had this disease. Getting her to a doctor was like pulling teeth. It was really difficult. Yeah, that had to be super difficult, being so far away. And then at what point was it? did it become apparent that something else had to happen? She had um, double knee surgery in her 80s, and after she came out of the anesthesia, she was really confused, and the doctor said she needs to have somebody with her full-time. And my mother couldn't accept that, and so that was the beginning of, wow, we got to do something. So I was just, you were saying at the beginning you thought, I need to get her to a doctor. What type of doctor did you suggest going to? Well, a neurologist is ideal, but she went to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist is actually the one that diagnosed her with dementia. So, uh, but a neurologist is also someone to go to. My mother was just, you know, they said that if they put her through tests, they would be probably find out that she had Alzheimer's, but due to her age, they didn't want to put her through those tests. Yeah, how old was she? when this happened? Yeah, she was in her 80s, a middle 80s, yeah. I want to say. So she'd been very independent and lived on her own for oh, a long yeah. time. Oh, yeah, and that's why she had double knee surgery. She wanted to continue to wow. golf. She oh, wanted to continue to enjoy her life. That's so hard. But, yeah, it was. Well, you know, I've had girlfriends who um, have had to make the decision to put their mothers in a facility based on the fact that they could no longer be alone and that they couldn't physically take care of them. And it seems like the biggest issue, or one of the biggest issues, is the guilt that they have. How did you work through that? That was really difficult. I did not want mom to have to go into a facility. I wanted her to live with me. But when I, we finally got her moved from um, Washington to California with her dog, we got her into a facility that also accepted dogs. And um, it was, I couldn't have her come and live with me because it was, I lived in an apartment, so I couldn't have her. It right. was physically impossible. Well, and you worked full-time, too. And I worked full-time, and it was just a heartbreak. It was a, really a heartbreak. I hated having her go into a facility. Was this financially hard on your family or on you? Yes, it was hard on my family. It wasn't on me, but on my mother's um, finances. Fortunately, she had gotten a long-term care uh, policy, and so we were able to use that for several years. That was just a godsend, but it continued to drain, of course. Those places are very expensive, yeah. And how did Alzheimer's OC help you? Oh, my. They, they're they just the greatest resource that they have been just with me from the beginning of all of this. I knew nothing about Alzheimer's, and having them here where I live and being able to talk to them, they were just Wonderful. Did you reach out to them? Yes, I did. I reached out to them. I gave them a phone call, and they were there, just there to help me every step of the way. What would you say is the maybe most important thing or advice you could give 
give people that might be suspicious of their of one of their loved ones? Well, first of all, really notice what they're doing. Pay attention. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing is it's hard for our loved ones to accept that they have this disease. And so they don't want to tell anybody. They don't want to have it. And so working through that is so difficult. So getting a diagnosis, if you can get them to a neurologist, that is ideal. And then they can go from there. And hopefully they'll accept what they have. That's, that's the most difficult part of it. Right. And we were just asking um, our other caregiver, what were you doing? For, what can you do for yourself to make sure that you get self-care as well? Because we hear that's a really important part of it all. Because were you spending your weekends going back and forth to see your mother? I mean, how did that work with her in the facility? Was it far away? Was it close oh, by? Oh, we, we chose a facility that accept dogs, and unfortunately that was really close by. Oh, good. So I could always go there and visit her. And, and the difficult part with visiting her as she began to decline and to continue to decline is how do you talk? Yeah, I you mean, mean yeah. she lost her ability to talk, and then you're like, what do you do when you go and see her? And so it was more like I started learning how to really notice her eyes and connect through her eyes and mm. just really touch her. And, you know, when she's when she's her body is down, get down there with her. And, you know, just all those things are so important. And the touch, touching her, talking to her, singing to her. And did you learn that just by interacting with her or did a place like because Jim it was, was saying here. they teach people yes how to be with their loved ones yes. because it is so different they have and classes think, here like yeah. compassionate um compassionate caring or or communication right and those classes really helped me yes and one of the big things was don't argue with them no don't try to <laughs> yeah. say that that's memory is not right or anything just accept it and go along right. with it well, you know, you mentioned that many of your family members are centurions or have lived long lives. Was there any history, any other yes. people that had suffered with yes. dementia? My mother's sister. Oh, okay. But it was so hush-hush that we didn't know about it till you know, after really kind of when my mom got it, I kind of heard about it. So things have really changed. Yes. What would you say? Has that been the last 20 years, 10 years? Yes, probably the last 10 years, yeah. So now it's much... More unfortunately, it's also much more prevalent. It but, is, but people are talking about it, and that's why we felt that it was important to do the show because so many people are either experiencing it or know someone that that is. I have several friends, and I think it's because it is. You know, we're living longer. Yeah, I mean, your mother didn't have it till quite late. Thank yes. goodness. Yes. How many years uh, did you have to care for her? Well, I, I didn't really count it, but I think it was 2011 through to 2018. This year, two, two months ago, she passed. She was 92. Wow. Now, are you concerned about dementia, or do you, is, and are, you doing oh, any, yes. are you doing anything proactive? As much as I can, just staying healthy, eating healthy, exercising, keeping my weight down. Those kinds of things. Well, I'm thinking just taking some more classes with computers also and, you know, like the podcast, learning about the podcast, yeah. which I knew nothing about. Well, you know what I'm thinking, too, now that I, I just remembered, Jan is a pianist. And I bet, Jan, because you, they, they say, remember when we had our children take yes. music when, when they were small? It's because they say it expands a part of the brain that otherwise doesn't happen. 
I bet because you're a pianist that you will not ever have this disease. That'll be wonderful. Yeah. And I think that you've, I think you've worked that brain. Cause, I mean, that's just a whole other part that, that really is opened up when you play an instrument. It is so much sure. fun, yes. That's awesome. Well, we just um, appreciate you being with us so much. If you've given us some advice, is there anything else that you would want to impart on yes. our listeners? Yes, yes. Um, you know, if you do have a loved one who has dementia or Alzheimer's, spend as much time as you can with them. I know it's hard. It's really hard to figure out what to do when they can't talk and they can't even feed themselves after a while. It's just like you go in, you think, what can I do? But go and be with them. And I just, the last about year, I was really frustrated for a long time. I didn't know what to do. I thought, what's the point? She doesn't know I'm here. She forgets I'm here, and then I come back. But I started learning how to really engage with her through her eyes. And, you know, the Alzheimer's Association has really helped me. That really helped me to keep going. When I got discouraged, I kept coming to some meetings here, and they really helped me to know how to focus and what to do. And I just started being able to connect with my mom in a way that I hadn't been. And so my last about year or year and a half was really precious to me. And then when she died, I was very fortunate to be there with her when she died. Mm. I was able to hold her hand for the last four hours of her life, which she wanted to not to be alone. I was able to have meaningful time at the end of her life. And I'm just so grateful for the uh, Alzheimer's Association that gave me so much valuable input and such a resource and I'm so happy you're doing this to help so many people to be able to hear about this because like you said it's so prevalent well thank you really so much for sharing because as we've been saying before this is one of these things that we don't really like to talk about no and you know people want to hide it and they don't want to talk about it so it's such an important issue to discuss and to hear that there is support for you you're not alone and that to go ahead and give yourself permission to get help. Yeah, yes. reach out. It sounds yes. like the, the common thread in all these conversations is reach out, get yes. help, and to get through it. Yes. Because it's as difficult it is so for difficult. the caregivers and the family members as it is for the person suffering yes. with them. It is very sad. But yes. it sounds like you did things right and it sounds like your mother was very very fortunate to have a daughter like you and again thank thank you you for sharing thank you one more thing before we go ladies do you have friends or family that have never listened to a podcast don't know what one is and certainly need help downloading so jamie's put together a fabulous quick tutorial on our website explaining what a podcast is and how to download just go to our website ladiesroadmap.com and go to the podcast page and it's right at the top thank you for spreading the word about ladies roadmap Thank you for listening to Ladies Roadmap. We'd like to give a shout out to our amazing music producer, Cam Tyler at litloops.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Just go to www.ladiesroadmap.com and click on podcast. It's as easy as that. Or you can subscribe on iTunes. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Ladies Roadmap. And you know what else? We would love to hear from you. Feel free to email us at info at ladiesroadmap.com. And until next week, remember, the greatest part of a road trip isn't arriving at your destination. It's all the wild stuff that happens in between. Mm -hmm.